0: Chapter One of Sister Simon's Murder Case. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Teresa. Sister Simon's Murder Case by Margaret Anne Hubbard. Chapter One. The slim little woman sat on the green bench in front of the curio shop, her eyes shifting with the crowd that passed inches beyond her knees. Too bad she could not enjoy herself in this vacation mecca, but she tried at least to relax, every time she thought of it. At these times she would straighten her small shoulders, remember how her hair always draggled in the heat, for the August mugginess still hung over into the evening, and feel for wisps to tuck under. Then her hand would go a little higher to touch the three pink roses on the hat. The roses looked nice. She had snipped new edges on them, and pressed the veil over wax paper. The cotton dress was too wide in the neck, but fastened up with the brooch, it was all right. Appearance was unimportant, anyway. She had come here with a purpose. In a minute or two, she would get up from the bench, go down the long cement stairs that led from Main Street to the little park on the waterfront. She couldn't help it. Her chin trembled. Fingering her chin, she felt the tiny white whisker that persisted in growing in the mole. She should have thought to pull it out. But it was no wonder, really. Really? that small thing slipped her mind. The Indian on the other end of the short bench began to scratch, thoroughly. Under the bench his dog cuffed an ear, tapping the little lady's ankle. She moved her foot, then raised her small suitcase from the pavement and stood it between herself and the Indian. He went on scratching. The little woman drew a long breath and set her gaze deliberately upon the crowd. All were vacationers, all in pursuit of amusement, That was why she felt so apart from them. But she liked the general bedlam, snatches of conversation, jukeboxes blasting from open shops, the solid zoom of traffic uphill from the river, and the hooting of downbound cars for the right of way on the narrow turn to the bridge, the whistles of boats, seemingly distant, but actually right down behind the buildings, the roar of skates from the roller rink. And the evening had a frivolous smell of popcorn, an arid summer, an engine exhaust, that called up pictures of travel and fun. A bus prowled past, nosing between automobiles. Its breath was different, heavy with burned kerosene. At every stop this afternoon the little woman had caught that oily stench, and it had made her sick. The same nausea rolled over her now. Only, to be fair, she couldn't put all the blame on the bus. She always felt sick to her stomach when she was worried, and to-night she was not only worried, she was in actual physical dread. Her hand flew again to her hat, a reflex so abrupt that her elbow knocked the suitcase against the Indian. He turned, mildly curious. "'Excuse me, so careless of me,' she murmured. Jumping up, snatching the suitcase, she dived into the crowd. "'No more dallying. Get it over.' Using the suitcase as a rudder, she pushed between a teenage couple, who were strolling arm in arm, shoved aside a middle-aged man who bristled, "'Well, pardon me for living,' and ran hard into a small boy." The boy squealed in the manner of children, who are much too tired and use any excuse to raise a commotion. His mother, a fat, moist woman, jerked him out of the way. With all this justification he opened his mouth and bawled. "'Oh, I'm really sorry,' the little woman apologized. What was the matter with her, barging in the people, endangering children? She never acted that way. "'I'm so sorry,' she said again. "'Could I buy him an ice-cream cone?' He's full of ice cream. That's what's the matter with him, the mother replied. Anyway, I got popcorn. Danny, cut it out. The little woman started at the name, then covered the movement with a gesture toward her hat. But the mother hadn't noticed. We're going to take the boat ride. I want to see them educational sights. I put in all year chasing kids. Now I'm going to enjoy myself, if it kills me. Danny! Yanking her screaming son after her, she charged off into the crowd. Her bag of popcorn broke open, dropping a trail of white kernels, as if she were a fairy-tale character bound to mark her way back. The small woman stepped to the curb, where she could stand for a minute to catch her breath. She had felt so anonymous coming here on this secret little mission, so secret she hadn't even made up her mind yet whether to see Diane this time, and it had been shocking, in a way, to hear her own name blurted out of the crowd not that the name had been addressed to her. But now she had a sense of urgency she hadn't had before. If someone were to come along who really knew her, there would be at best a delay while she smiled and explained how she had just happened to drop into town. And if the person also knew Diane, one of the student nurses from St. Matthew's, for instance, that would be even worse. How could she say, Don't mention this meeting to my niece, because if my suspicion is right, then I wouldn't dare go near her. The suitcase skidded down, rattling against the lamppost. Danny opened the old black purse, took out a clean handkerchief, and pushed up her hat. The hat left her forehead with a sticky little break. It would be pressing a red rim below her hairline. Carefully, she wiped her brow. A few people were doing that, mostly men. They would think she was hot, if they thought at all. The cold clamminess of fear was as foreign here as the winter snows. She put away the handkerchief. She was in front of the great building owned by the boat company, a cavernous affair architecturally somewhere between a mausoleum and a railroad station. If people were not hurrying in, they were hurrying out. Between this edifice and the roller rink there was a gap of a quarter of a block, where the sidewalk became a gallery topping the retaining wall. A crowd hung on the railing, looking down on another throng in the miniature park below. There would be an excursion boat loading at the dock for the moonlight trip up the river. With the departure of the boat, most of the crowd would struggle away. Quickly, Danny picked up the suitcase. At the very corner of the boat company's building, the long stairs began, plodding in low, wide steps down into the paper-strewn, smudgy park. Halfway down, Danny stopped. The statues were still there, close in by the wall, mummies of mud and shadow, but she couldn't take time to look at them now over on the riverbank under the glare of the raw electric bulbs stringing together the docks and the ticket booth there were clots of people the big white excursion boat was in a frenzy of light and fluttering banners the whole place was bright almost fearfully so because the brilliance washing over all the faces touched her own danny leaned hard against the railing her neck stretched tense as if every inch nearer might help and her eyes cut into the crowd slipping over the women not even seeing the children clinging for a second or two to every man. It was difficult to follow them, shifting as they did, almost like viewing the designs in a kaleidoscope and thinking surely you had seen that pit before. Down the ticket line, face by face, across the scattered groups and the moving couples, her gaze paced along, discarding every one. She couldn't be quite positive about the people on the boat. With the distance, even though the deck was wide open to the sky, It was hard to tell exactly, but as the last few struggled past the ticket-taker, her confidence flared into open bloom. He was not here. She had been mistaken in believing she had seen him before. If she hadn't gone scuttling off like a scared rabbit, she would have sorted away those imagined similarities, known that this was the last place in the world he would ever be, and she would have saved herself three weeks of utter misery. Almost weak with relief, Danny turned slowly away from the bright lights. No reason now why she should not get a better look at the mud figures. They had intrigued her on that previous visit, but the first throbs of apprehension were driving through her then, and she had thought of little else. Deliberately she crossed to the small, roped-off area, and set down the suitcase. How nice that no one had destroyed the statues, for they were oddly beautiful, even though they were only made of mud. Not perfect, any of them, but also right, exactly what you might expect to find by a river, There was a drowned woman, still clutching her baby, and a bearded riverman, who had thrown himself down to sleep. You could actually see the difference between the sleeping and the dead. And a camp cook squatted beside his fire. A dog lay curled around her two small puppies. There had been more than the two in the beginning. That was why the mother was so protective toward these. The sculptor, whoever he was, possessed real talent to be able to express such delicate shadings through the ugly medium of mud and he had revealed something of himself in his work. Tenderness, for instance, in the guarding pose of the dog's head, and the curve of the woman's arm about her child. But there was an impatience, too. A face, nicely started, was caved in by a big footprint. Several mounds showed the first forming of hands or heads. Why had he not broken down these attempts and used them over, instead of digging up new earth? The digging must be laborious. He had few tools, merely a spade, a bucket of water, several small instruments that looked like nut-picks. Danny's little imagining stumbled and fell apart. As one knows instinctively at times, she knew that someone was watching her. Nothing to be alarmed about, of course. She did have a few acquaintances in the Narrows. Casually she turned to the stairs, glancing over the crowd. Her glance did not go far. Like her thoughts a moment ago, it stumbled and stood still. It was not he, she told herself numbly. It couldn't be. This was a stranger. The face was different. But not the eyes. Only one pair of eyes in the world could induce the beat of fear that leaped thumping against her ribs. They had not always looked at her that way. She had seen them laughing, impudent, pleading once in a while. But now they nailed her to the ground, cold and bleak, daring her to remember. I don't remember. She wanted to cry out. I don't know you. All I want is to get away and forget I ever saw you. Let me go. She managed, somehow, to bend and pick up the suitcase. Yet, how could she run? A woman chasing up the stairs, banging people with her suitcase, would stick out like a sore thumb in this leisurely crowd. Remember how conspicuous she had made herself up on Main Street. But she could leave, quietly taking her time. And even if he should follow her, the thumping nearly overcame her. If he should follow her, what, after all, could he do? nothing if she remained with people, and she could sit on the green bench for the entire night if necessary. With all the bravery she could muster, Danny raised her head, and then she knew that fear was not only a lonely emptiness in the middle of the night. In that moment it became for her a cold gray thing against the heat and color of the carnival, a pair of eyes forbidding her to move or think or even breathe, and they blocked her only escape, the long stairs up to Main Street. Down on the dock where the big white triton was taking on her eight o'clock load of passengers, a girl leaned back against the railing, one red sandal hooked into the bars behind her, her dark eyes eagerly upon the crowd. She never grew tired of watching people. In one way, vacationers were like the patients in the hospital, a tribe in themselves, cut off from the groove in which they spent their daily lives, and it was interesting to try to discern the marks of the groove. She was always doing that at St. Matt's picking out the lawyers and shoe clerks and teachers, and then during the chit-chat of nursing care, she could find out if she was right. There was no way of finding out here, not that it mattered. She could always move on to a new face. That woman, for instance. The woman had come into view at the top of the long stairs. A tiny person, not very well dressed, eye-catching because she carried a suitcase, which, in spite of its small size, appeared to be quite a burden for her. Why hadn't she checked it at her hotel?' the girl wondered idly. It would just be in her way on the boat ride, but perhaps she was not planning on taking the excursion, for she came slowly, finally stopping to study the crowd. Even at that distance, something about her was familiar. The girl unhooked her sandal from the rail and spoke to the blue uniformed young man who was taking tickets at the gangplank. I'm going over there a minute, Ted. We're ready to pull out. Don't go far, Liz. I'll be right back. The little woman had come on down the stairs to stand looking at the mud figures, so intent that she was entirely unaware of being an object of interest herself. Lisette approached the bed of Drooping Cannas. From here she could see the woman's face plainly, somewhere they had met herself and this little stranger, possibly at the hospital. Her cotton dress fitted her badly, and all you could say about her hat was that she had done the best she could with it her stockings were cheap but guarded up nice and tight so they only wrinkled slightly around the ankles there was no permanent in her limp soft hair and she was alarmingly pale but she was beautiful the goodness in her face shone forth like another light surrounding her with the spiritual cleanness of a saint there was fragility about her too a delicateness that called out for protection in this every man for himself sort of world you wanted to take her hand and pat her on the shoulder and assure her that things were going to be all right, if they weren't already. And things were not all right. The woman was worried, and worry had taken away her appetite, and lack of food had made her pale. Tiny lines of distress showed around her eyes, and her lips had a tired sag. Lisette's mother feelings boiled up. Ted was always laughing at her for feeding stray cats and giving dimes to bums, but this woman was worthy of at least a kind word. Something about the mud figures that would be a good opener. And then haven't we met before? Somewhere, Lisette knew she had seen that high-crowned hat with the three pink roses. There couldn't be another like it. Lisette had stepped forward and was about to speak when a sudden, startling change came over the small stranger. She had been standing with the quietness of keen attention as she studied the statues, but now, as if she had received a physical blow, she stiffened. Her face became a death mask. For half of a frozen minute, she did not move. Then, seemingly impelled by some force, she could not resist. She turned toward the long stairs and again stood still. In bewildered wonder, Lisette scanned the crowd for some person or thing to account for this amazing change. But so far, as she could see, there was nothing fearful anywhere. Several people appeared to be watching the little woman, a natural consequence in view of her behavior, but none with lethal interest. Over on the stairs, a step or so up, was a garish figure in black Turkish trousers, white satin shirt, and orange turban. The mind reader who held forth in the purple tent up by the roller rink. Jenny was always going to him. A ludicrous creature, really. A little nearer, a Ponty tourist had planted himself, hat on the back of his head, and jaw swinging around a half-eaten cigar. Very much diverted by the woman, Lisette thought fleetingly, but certainly not contemplating bodily harm. The neatness of his short beard was a contradiction to his general air of carelessness. The sculptor of the mud figures had appeared also, probably from a lair under the steps, for he looked as if he had been heavily asleep a minute ago. He was a handsome animal of a man, tall and broadly built, his black shirt opened far down over a powerful chest, graying hair tumbled back from a broad forehead, his whole bearing that of a vagrant. Lazily his gaze slid from the woman, and came to rest on Lisette, In haste, she looked away. "'Don't have anything to do with the carnival drifters,' Ted was always telling her. "'Keep clear of them.' There was amusement in his smile, even derision, but nothing sinister. The only real animosity came from a frowzy, red-headed woman, who glowered frankly and blocked the path through the stairs with the wide, solid stance of a man. But since she was glowering at everyone, it was hard to tell how much of her ill will was directed at the little stranger. "'Which of these people?' "'Lizette mused. "'Which is the alarming one? "'Or was it someone she hadn't noticed?' "'Down at the dock the triton gave a warning toot. "'If Lizette were to help the woman at all, "'it would have to be immediately.' "'She stepped forward and laid her hand "'on the shoulder of the cotton dress. "'I'm sure we've met somewhere,' she said. "'At St. Matt's? "'I'm a student nurse.' "'The woman spun to face her. "'For a fraction of a second, "'Lizette was certain she saw recognition "'and the really beautiful blue eyes.' but a hand went to the trembling mouth, cutting off a very audible gasp, and then, with the suitcase batting her knees at every step, the little woman darted around the glowering redhead and rushed up the stairs. Lisette could only stare after her in complete astonishment. Surely she herself was not a frightening sight. Yet the woman was scrambling up the stairs, as if her life depended on it. Sigh-stepping away from the mind-reader, she stumbled onto the top and disappeared in the crowd. "'Friend of yours?' Lizette jumped. The artist had come closer, and was regarding her with a very charming and very personal smile, most appreciative of her young slenderness and her summer tan and her dark hair blowing in the wind. She could feel the catalogue being made. Raising her chin high, she looked him up and down. "'I don't believe it's any concern of yours,' she said. He cocked his head as if he might be a little hard of hearing, but she wouldn't repeat her statement." and then, turning, she walked slowly past the canna-bed. The triton's whistle jerked on insistent summons, but Lizette would not hurry. That mud-pie character was not going to think she was running away from him. She arrived on the dock just as Ted began to lift the gangplank. "'Holy smoke, Liz! Will you straggle aboard?' he urged. "'You know how Jerry is. What kept you?' "'I am sorry, Ted. Honestly, I am,' she said." Jerry, the Triton's pilot, was old and a stickler for promptness, because he wanted to get home to bed. The guys were not supposed to take their girlfriends free on the boat rides, but all of them did it. Jerry only put up with her presence, Lisette knew, because she never bothered him. "'I won't be late again,' she promised. "'Maybe there won't be any again. He's mad.' Meekly, Lisette slipped past to stand beside the rail, Ted slammed the gangplank into place and shouted to the pilot, and the boat eased away from the landing. She fully expected Ted to start off forward, then, and take his place on the high stool, where he perched for his discourse to the passengers. Instead, he stopped beside her, looking straight ahead, his profile solidly masterful, as Caesar on a Roman coin. "'What did he say to you?' "'Who?' "'Don't hedge. That whole carnival outfit is a bunch of tramps. Why did you go over there, anyway?' The woman, I thought I knew her. Was he asking you for a date? Ted, really, you haven't any right to. Haven't I? Whose frat pin are you wearing? Lizette slipped her hand under his elbow. There was no response. Jenny thinks he's wonderful, she said, putting a smile into her voice. Tell Jenny to keep away from him. He's no good. All right, Jasper. What woman? just someone I noticed in the crowd. Why bother about her? Because she interested me. Don't you ever wonder about people? Sure, when I'm helping lay him out at Waddy's, you ought to see him sometime. Lisette jerked her hand away. We got a guide this trip or ain't we? Jerry's voice came over the mike. Be seeing you, Ted muttered, and dived off into the twilight under the awning. It wasn't what he had said about Waddy's. Lizette pondered furiously. It was the implication. He had become very insistent lately that she go with him to the mortuary. At a nice, quiet time, he said, when there was no one around. He hadn't exactly fancied his job as nightman, at first, either, he always explained, but it was good experience for a future doctor, and it fitted nicely into the night hours after he had finished on the boat. And a nurse who was expecting to be a doctor's wife would have to get over her aversion to seeing the dead, because dying, he always ended up was as natural as being born. A trip to Waddy's would be the first step in the getting-over process. "'Well, I'm not going,' Liz said aloud, and folded her arms firmly on the rail. "'Ever,' she added. "'Wearing his fraternity pin didn't mean she had to knuckle under to Ted. She was going to keep the pin, and she wasn't going to Waddy's, and she was going to talk to whoever she pleased down on the waterfront, man or woman.' the lights of the town seemed to be receding while the boat stood still back there somewhere probably up on main street the woman would be plodding along with her lonely little fears surely lizette worried there was something she could have done to help maybe tomorrow. good evening ladies and gentlemen ted began through the mike. you are about to see the narrows by moonlight an unforgettable sight we are now entering the jaws of the narrows the jaws of rocks standing out against the moonlight looked savage. How long had they guarded the river? Against their age, the span of a human life was a mere second, but still important to eternity. Tomorrow, Lisette promised herself, she would haunt the waterfront until she found the little woman again, and she would make her understand her desire to help. And she wouldn't tease Ted any more. He was too wonderful a guy. But she wasn't going to Waddy's. Dropping her cheek on her folded arms. She watched the path of moonlight spinning out behind the boat on the water. Life, she felt, was a very nice proposition. End of chapter 1